This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Alice Henderson about A Ghost of Caribou. In addition to being a writer, Alice is a wildlife sanctuary monitor and a geographic information system specialist. She documents wildlife on specialized recording equipment, checks remote cameras, creates maps, and undertakes wildlife surveys to determine what species are present on preserves while ensuring there are no signs of poaching. She's surveyed for the presence of grizzlies, wolves, wolverines, jaguars, endangered bats, and more. I always love having Alice on the show, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome back, Alice. How are you today? I'm great, Cindy. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. You were always one of my favorite authors to interview, and this is our third conversation. You're one of the few authors that I've had three conversations with. And I'm so honored. I love your podcast, and it's great to be a guest again. Well, I'm thrilled you're here, and I loved A Ghost of Caribou. I have loved all of your books, but I think A Ghost of Caribou is my favorite so far. That is so good to hear. You know, you're never sure. So that's wonderful that you like this one the best so far. I thought it was great. And I feel like your books have been everywhere since we last talked. Like every time I turn around, I'm like, there they are again. So that is wonderful. That's just so exciting for you. It's a great feeling. I love the traction the series is getting. And I love hearing from readers and bookstagrammers have been posting these amazing photos and giving reviews. And it's just fabulous. I love it. I'm always just so happy when I see your book somewhere. Well, let's dive in and you give me a quick synopsis of A Ghost of Caribou for those that won't have read it yet. All right. So uh, Ghost of Caribou is about Alex Carter, who's my wildlife biologist protagonist. And she is tasked with going to a remote wildlife sanctuary in Washington state. And it's held by the Land Trust for Wildlife Conservation. 
and they think they have what might be a mountain caribou on one of their remote cameras, but they're not sure. The picture's blurry. So they ask Alex to go to this preserve to find out if there really are mountain caribou using it. And when she's called in to investigate, she finds that this isn't her only challenge, finding the caribou. Loggers and activists are clashing over a swath of old-growth forest marked for clear-cutting, and the murdered body of a forest ranger is found strung up in the town's park at the start of the novel. And then Alex learns that there was also a backcountry hiker who went missing in the same area the year before. So as she ventures into the forest in search of this endangered animal, she quickly finds herself in a fight for her life, caught between factions warring for the future of the forest and a murderer stalking the dense groves of ancient trees. Well, again, I just loved it, and I can't wait for other people to read it. So last year, we talked about the difference in mountain caribou and barren ground caribou, something that I wasn't even aware of until our conversation. But for those that haven't listened to that interview or haven't read your book yet, could you give me a quick summary of the difference in the two? Of course. So when people think of caribou, they're usually thinking of barren ground caribou, which are the caribou that roam in those massive herds up in like Alaska and the Yukon and Northwest Territories. But mountain caribou are very different. They actually live in much smaller herds in very steep mountainous terrain. And they feed off lichen during the winter, which is has very little nutritional value. So it's very unusual for them to be able to survive on it. And they go up into these steep areas and they stand on the tall snowpack to reach this tree-hanging lichen. It's a very specific lichen that grows in old-growth forests. But during the winter, because the snowpack is so deep, these mountain caribou can travel up the mountainside and they have these big shovel-like hooves that they can stand on top of the deep snowpack to reach this lichen to survive. And the herds can be rather small. Like a barren ground caribou herd, for example, the porcupine herd is many tens of thousands of individuals. But our last, in the U.S., southern mountain caribou herd was maybe around 50. Um, and then it just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So they're, they're a very different niche that they fill from the barren ground caribou that roam the tundra. Well, and I loved how you wove in the story of the old growth trees and how a company was trying to tear them down. And then activists were trying to protect them because that is something that really does impact the mountain caribou, correct? That's correct. Um, mountain caribou face a number of environmental threats. Loss of habitat is a huge one because they rely on these old growth forests and the tree hanging lichen that grow in the old growth. Clear cutting is a huge problem for them. So when these trees are cut down, obviously the lichen is no longer there. And that lichen takes many decades to grow in these many, many decades old trees. So the lichen isn't there. But another problem with this clear cutting and the loss of old growth is that then these new young forests take over. They have a different composition. And with those young forests come animals that typically graze in younger forests. For example, deer, like mule deer, elk, moose. And with those species come wolves. Now, normally mountain caribou are not predated on by wolves because they're in these very steep areas. So when the wolves move in to hunt the elk and the deer, they're also exposed to caribou. And the problem with this is they don't have a predator-prey relationship with caribou. So for example, if they feed on moose, the moose population goes down. That makes the wolf population go down. Then the moose population rebounds and the wolf population rebounds. 
But because caribou are just this side animal that they're predating on that they don't have this relationship with, the caribou population goes down and it doesn't affect the wolf population. So they just keep predating on them. And another reason they have access to the caribou are snowmobile trails and plowed roads and things like that, plowed logging roads, that they're normally not having access to the caribou habitat in these steep mountainous areas, but now they do have access to them. So that's one issue with the wolf predation. And then the other thing is climate change. Because these caribou rely on the very steep, deep snowpack to stand on to eat the tree lichen, with climate change, snowpack is getting less and less and less, and they're unable to reach this high-hanging tree lichen in the winter. One of the things I love about your series is that you focus on endangered animals, but with that focus, you also talk about the resulting impact on the environment. So for example, the wolves and the caribou and how caribou will be eaten by wolves and go away, but it doesn't impact the wolf population at all. And you talk about the lichen and all of that. And I think it's so important because a lot of people who aren't living this stuff day to day don't really understand that the loss of one animal isn't just the loss of one animal, but it completely impacts an entire area, you know, and I don't know, biosphere or whatever you want to call it, you'll have a much better term for it. But the environment is greatly impacted by the loss of an animal more than just the loss of the animal. Absolutely. Everything is so interconnected. And I think as we're seeing more and more species extinction, we're really realizing this cascading effect through the web of life it has when one animal is lost. I think that's exactly right. And now remind me how you decided on the mountain caribou for this one. Well, in 2019, we still had some mountain caribou in the U.S. They were part of the southern mountain caribou in the South Selkirks, which is in the northeastern corner of Washington, where it borders on Idaho and Canada. So we still had a herd in the contiguous U.S. And this herd was actually protected as endangered in 1983. However, I think a lot of people don't realize it's not like a magic thing when they get listed, then they're protected and it's good and moving forward. I mean, the Endangered Species Act has had some great successes, like with the bald eagle, for example. But in the case of the caribou and many other animals, it was listed in 1983, but then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to designate critical habitat and come up with a recovery plan. Well, 20 years later, they still hadn't designated any habitat. And this herd was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, like dangerously small. And so they were sued by a number of environmental organizations in 2002 to come up with some designated habitat. But in 2009, they still hadn't done it. So they were sued again. So finally, in 2011, U.S. Fish and Wildlife proposed more than 375,000 acres. But in the end, they decided only to designate about 30,000 acres. That's crazy. It is. It's, it's ridiculous. So in 2012, by the time they finally designated this critical habitat, the mountain caribou population had gotten so small that they were thinking, oh, well, let's just take it off the Endangered Species Act altogether because they were under enormous pressure from snowmobile associations and anti-environment law firms that thought, well, heck, this animal's almost gone anyway. Why do we still have to have it on the Endangered Species Act? So U.S. Fish and Wildlife hemmed and hawed about delisting them until finally there were only two mountain caribous left in this area in the lower 48. 
and they were both female. So obviously the herd's not going to get any bigger. So Canada took them. And it was only after we had no mountain caribou left in the lower 48 that U.S. Fish and Wildlife said, okay, we'll, we'll keep them on the Endangered Species Act. A lot of good that does them at this point. Right. And the, the population that they took them to in Canada and British Columbia, their mountain caribou are also not faring well for the same reasons, a lot of clear cutting and climate change and wolf predation. And the sad thing about this is we lost our last two caribou in 2019, which was when I was thinking about what species am I going to do next? So when I read about that, and I love caribou, I, I love seeing them, I'm fascinated by them, I knew that mountain caribou had to be my next species. Well, I can't remember if I told you this, but I read your book while I was in Washington State. My family vacation this year, instead of going to Colorado like we normally do, was Oregon and Washington, and I'd never been to either one before. We were not in eastern Washington. We were in western Washington and Oregon, but still much closer than I normally am to the environment that you're writing about when I'm reading it. So it was just kind of interesting to be in that area while I was reading your book. That's fabulous. I, I love those two states. It's just such gorgeous scenery there. Definitely. You know, we're so used to Rocky Mountain and how high it is and how many trails there are. So it was really interesting to go to Olympic, which is larger, but much less developed for humans to enjoy the park. So it was interesting. Mount Rainier was great because there are a lot of trails there and it's easy to get around. And Olympic was pretty, but you can't really enjoy it like you can enjoy Rocky Mountain unless you're going to really do big, long backcountry hikes, which you would love to do, but my family is not really up for. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've hiked in the Ho Rainforest there, and um, Hurricane Ridge is really pretty. And Hurricane Ridge is pretty, but like once you've been up to the top of, again, Rocky Mountain, you're like, these mountains are kind of short. <laughs> so it was just sort of funny. And, you know, there's just not, I don't know, it's, it's just kind of funny. But we did like it, and definitely Mount Rainier was beautiful, and we enjoyed hiking around there. But I was just kind of surprised by the lack of trails for people and the lack of rangers and all that in the Olympic. But I think it's because it's so large, and it encompasses so many different things. Like the beach actually was the coolest part, I think, of that park. Oh, it's gorgeous. Did yeah. you go to Ruby Beach? We went to the one that's all the pebbles, and now it's not Ruby. What is the name of it? Maybe Rialto? Yes, I think it was Rialto. And we saw all these seals swimming. That was the only wildlife we also saw the entire trip, which I thought was crazy. Because again, when we go to Rocky Mountain, we see so many different things and we saw nothing, just those seals. Wow. Isn't that crazy? It is. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. And then we also saw tons and tons of clear cutting, which I was also surprised about because you'd be driving along and there'd just be this whole gap of woods, not in the national park, but in the national forest and in a lot of the the areas, you know, all of a sudden you just have this huge gap. It's stunning, isn't it? In both Washington and Oregon, it's just, a, it's like a patchwork quilt with all these bald spots, just huge areas that have been clear cut on the sides of mountains. Yeah, it's, it's really ugly. <laughs> so you're like, oh, that's such a shame that they do that. But I totally get it because we all are using all of these resources all of the time. But it's a shame they can't figure out some way to do it to keep it from looking so barren like that. It's, it's, it's hard to look at. And there's a lot of alternatives to clear cutting, of course. And then there's not clear cutting the old growth. Like right now, Biden has made a task force to go out and check for all the old growth so that they're not included when, they're, when everything is clear cut. So, I mean, that's his intention is that we can preserve these older trees or older sections of forest. Uh, whether that happens uh, will remain to be seen. But that's the real shame with these mountain caribou is 
you know, the way that they could have been saved was to stop this clear cutting of old growth. But instead of doing that or enacting climate change legislation, um, especially with wolf predation, this is the really sad part is instead of doing steps to save the caribou and protect its habitat, which would not allow the wolves to have access to them, both the United States and Canada have been killing wolves, thousands of wolves to keep them from predating on the caribou. Oh, that's crazy. I know that's been an issue in Yellowstone off and on since they reintroduced the wolves. You know that there's been a lot of pushback for a variety of other reasons related to the wolves, but that they're having the same issue. Oh, that's a shame. And really, there is so much clear cutting going on that they ought to be able to just grow up new trees and cut them. They don't need the old growth. Exactly. And when you visit some of those places like Sequoia or Redwoods, and you see these beautiful old trees, which are, I understand, different types of trees, but still, these beautiful old trees, you think, oh, come on, people, we really need to protect this type of stuff while we can. Absolutely. And some of it being cut down, like not, is, is the reason is just heartbreaking, like virgin forest being cut down for toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. Or on top of it, then I know last summer we went to California and went to Sequoia and we were there in August and it wasn't even a month after we left that those horrible fires broke out and they were worried about a lot of those sequoias burning. So, I mean, on top of the cutting, you also have fires and other things that can threaten the trees. So you definitely want to protect them when you can. Exactly. And I talk about this in A Ghost of Caribou, but back before fire suppression really turned out to be a, a big issue here in the West and regular forest fires that were started by lightning would sweep through the understory of forest, clearing out the undergrowth. Fires didn't burn as hot or as high, but now that we had decades of fire suppression and now we have all of this undergrowth, when a fire happens, it's devastating. It can reach up into the canopy of trees and just kill an entire forest. I mean, we're really seeing that in California. They're devastatingly hot and high now. Definitely. And there seem to be a lot of them. Yes. So trees like you're talking about the sequoia and all kinds of other pines are actually able to survive forest fires as long as they're burning low on the ground. But these are a different animal altogether, which it's not just fire suppression, of course, it's climate change and just incredible drought has dried these forests out to, to just be tinder now. Yeah, it's sad. Well, what surprised you the most while riding a ghost of caribou? I think, well, learning really about the nitty gritty of how the ESA works, the Endangered Species Act, I was one of those people that I didn't realize that there's so many steps involved and that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can just miss these deadlines just, and they only act on it if they're sued. So that it made me really realize that the Endangered Species Act needs to be strengthened. Of course, it's been weakened in the last few years. So strengthened and um, we really need some additional legislation like the Paw and Fin Act, for example, to help bolster protections. And education, I think. And that's why I like your books, because I feel like people that aren't going to maybe pay attention to these stories in the news are going to grab your book because it's a great story and learn all of this stuff. And hopefully it will resonate with them. That's what I'm hoping. You know, I wanted to tell a suspenseful tale that would pull readers in and, and at the same time, hopefully, you know, inspire them to learn more about these species and fall in love with them and even take action, hopefully. And you have great ways to take action. Some small, some large in the back of the book. And I love that because you say it doesn't have to be a 100% all-in type of thing. There are smaller things that people can do that won't disrupt their everyday life at all, but will definitely communicate 
they're unhappy with the way climate change is going. Absolutely. I mean, you can, if you really want to get out there and get your hands dirty um, and volunteer for caribou, you can go out and collect that tree hanging lichen I mentioned and help with supplemental winter feeding. Um, There's a couple organizations that do that, the Selkirk Conservation Alliance and the Arrow Lakes Caribou Society, or just support organizations that help with caribou recovery, um, like those two I mentioned, or Caribou Rainforest, uh, Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, and that you can just do from your home computer. So, And of course, writing your representatives and encouraging them to pass more renewable energy legislation. That's what I was just going to say. Write letters to both your congressmen and your senators, but also corporations. Let it be known that this is the way you want things to go. Absolutely. That's such a great point, Cindy, because these corporations are, I mean, money talks, right? And if we let these corporations know we're not going to buy your products if you keep you know, funding this kind of legislation, and definitely. So everybody needs to get going on that. <laughs> yes. Well, talking about a fast-paced story, I was so curious as I was reading your action scenes this time because they're very well done. Is it something that you plot out or is it something that you just sit down and say, okay, what is Alex going to do here and what's going to happen to her? How does that part of your writing work? That part is my favorite part, Cindy. I love writing action scenes and fight scenes. I'll sit down to write and I know an action scene's coming up and suddenly it's hours later and time has just flown by. So usually what I do is I'll have, I'll have an idea of what I want to have happen to Alex, like how injured she can get, what tools she has at hand that she could use to help herself get out of the situation. And so I'll have a general idea and then I'll just start writing and and letting it unfold on its own. So it has, it's both organic and sort of plotted out when I write those scenes. So I'm a little bit surprised sometimes, oh, she could use this or do this and fight this way. Or so it really, I like how it all comes together. It's my favorite part to write. I love that because I feel like you are so mild-mannered, and so it's so great that that's the part you enjoy writing the most. (laughs) Thank you. So what's up next for Alex Carter? What animal will she be working to protect next time around? So in the next book, it's called A Prowl of Jaguars, and it's set in New Mexico, and Alex is tasked with seeing if jaguars are using a wildlife preserve in New Mexico. And jaguars used to roam like from California all the way to Louisiana. And now I think there's two in the U.S. It's, it's pretty rough. They've been subject to overhunting, of course, and during the fur coat craze and things like that, and also the habitat destruction. But in addition to that, and this book deals with it, the wall. There are ways to build the wall that allows wildlife to still pass through it, but a lot of it are these impenetrable barriers For example, I just read about a Mexican gray wolf that walked for 42 miles along the wall trying to find a place to cross to find a mate and was unsuccessful. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So I've really been enjoying digging into jaguars and their biology and their movements and where they're crossing the border. So like the mountain caribou, the jaguar was listed as endangered on the Endangered Species Act, actually as far back as 1972, across some of their range and across their entire range in 1997. But it took the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 50 years to designate critical habitat. So that was only designated as recently as 2014, again, because of being sued by environmental organizations. So 
There's like little sections in New Mexico and Texas where they can cross into the U.S. So I wanted Alex to dive into that and their environment. And it's going to be very different than the the cold uh, Montana and the Canadian Arctic like the previous book. So it'll be in a more desert environment sort of near the Gila National Forest in New Mexico. That's another thing I enjoy about your book is that she's not staying put. So I'm learning about all of these different habitats and areas based on where Alex is going. Is there a larger jaguar population in Mexico? They are found in Mexico and in Sonora, Mexico. There's a a population there. And they actually extend all the way down into Brazil. And unfortunately, because of poaching and grazing conflicts and things like that, they have been extirpated in some South American countries. So overall, the population is in danger, especially here in the U.S., There's a lot of poaching here of jaguars. For example, there was one that was crossing into Arizona and unfortunately was killed by a poacher in 2018. And one fascinating thing about jaguars is they have these rosettes in their fur and they're all unique. So if you see a photo of a jaguar and then a photo of another jaguar, you can tell if it's the same jaguar. So it's pretty neat. These remote cameras on the border can track them just by looking at the pattern of their fur, which unfortunately is how they identified one of the jaguars who had been using Arizona as being the victim of a poacher in 2018. I've always thought that was so cool that jaguars are so distinctive like that, like our fingerprints, but instead it's something you can truly visually see on them. Yes. And from a distance, which is, which is nice and non-invasive way to study them. Exactly. A lot easier than trying to get fingerprints. Yes. (laughs) Well, back to A Ghost of Caribou. How did you decide on the title and how did y'all decide on the cover? Same as Blizzard and uh, Polar Bears and The Solitude of Wolverines. Uh, Once again, I chose an animal that really has no group name. And I wanted each book in the series to be the group name of the animal and then the animal. So like A Parliament of Owls or Murder of Crows. So with A Ghost of Caribou, there's a word for a general deer group, the herd of deer, of course, but not specifically for the mountain caribou. So they're often called the gray ghost of the forest because they're so elusive. And so I thought a ghost of caribou would be a good choice. And with the cover, it's a departure from the previous two. Did you see that? I did. It's a new designer and they wanted to go in a different direction. And they also the cover for the German version of A Solitude of Wolverines, which is called Wilt, has that peering up into the trees kind of eerie cover. And um, so they wanted to go with that sort of feel for this third book. I didn't realize it was a new designer, but I love it. I think it's beautiful. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. It's been interesting to see how how people are reacting to the, the new cover. I bet so. I'm sure you're getting all sorts of comments. I am. People seem to really like it, and it's eerie. It is eerie, and I like the way you're just looking up into the trees. It's just a cool perspective. Yes, I definitely wanted them to have like old-growth trees on the cover, and HarperCollins is great, and I get a say in the cover and can suggest things that I think would be neat, and then they go from there, which is great, because a lot of the time authors have no choice whatsoever. That's right. And it is nice that they take your input. Yes. Well, what have you read lately that you really liked? So recently I read Dark Passage by David Goodis. who wrote it in 1946 because I've been reading a lot of sort of golden age mysteries 
And it was written in a very interesting way. It was the first book of his I had read. So that was a really neat one. Very suspenseful. I'm not familiar with him, but it sounds like it was an intriguing read. It is. He writes, he has an interesting writing style because he'll write these very short, repeating sentences. Like, he walked to the door. It was a green door. The number on the door was 307. So it's kind of these fast, noir-type sentences. But then if it's an action scene, the sentences can go for pages. He grabbed his arm. He found out that he had lost the gun. He dove for it. He, and it'll, so it's very suspenseful. It was, it was really interestingly written. Sounds like it. And then I've been reading more Arena Shapiro. She has that Redmond and Hayes mystery series. I think I mentioned it last time. Um, I've just been devouring those. Um, last time we talked, I'd only read the first one, Murder in the Crypt. But now I've read Murder at the Abbey, Murder at the Mill, Murder in the Caravan. (laughs) (laughs) So you have been diving in. I have been. um, It's so great when you find an author you like and you can just like read everything that they've written. And those are neat. They're about an English lord in the 1860s who is actually an American who fought in the Civil War, but inherited this title in England along with a, a huge manse. And he helps this local constable solve murders. They're very likable. Everyone is very likable, and and they're really well-written. And that's something nice to read these days, something that everybody is likable in and can kind of take you away from everything happening in the real world. Yes, and I think it's important, especially in suspense or thrillers, to like the characters because otherwise you're not as worried about them and like, well, okay. And the last thing that, that I just finished reading, which was sort of unusual for me, I don't read a lot of fantasy But I just read Magic Kingdom for Sale Sold by Terry Brooks, which is a delightful book about a lawyer in Chicago who reads an ad to buy a magical kingdom for a million dollars. And he thinks, "Okay, is this real? (laughs) And buys it and finds out this is in the start of the book. Yes, it is a real magical kingdom that he's bought. And the requirement is that he be king of it. It was just wonderful, so delightfully written. Oh, that sounds so interesting. When you first mentioned it, I thought maybe he was being offered the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. (laughs) I was like, oh, huh. But oh, that sounds like it could be a fun read. The other thing I meant to ask you before we dove into your reads was what kind of research you personally have been working on. So yes, the research I've been doing lately actually really ties into A Ghost of Caribou. I've been helping out with two caribou collar camera projects as a caribou observer. So researchers affix these collars onto caribou that have a camera on it, a video camera, and it records about 10 seconds of video every few hours. And and then as the observer, I watch these videos and then I categorize their behavior. So are they sleeping or walking? Are they... um, shaking their heads to get rid of insects or are they like feeding their calves or giving birth. So you really get a neat glimpse into these caribou lives. Um, It's so neat to see how they're interacting with each other. And if they have a baby, I get to follow this baby growing up over the course of a summer. And then the cameras fall off at the end. So it's just so neat to see these little calves growing up and frolicking. And <laughs> it's really neat. So these are barren ground caribou, actually, in the Alaska and Yukon area. 
they're not doing very well either. But so I've done two projects, one with the 40 mile caribou herd, which is near the Alaska Yukon border, and the porcupine caribou herd, also in the Alaska and Yukon. So it's a project with like USGS, University of Montana, the Yukon territorial government. So it's a it's a neat mix of people. Okay, that sounds fascinating. It's it's fun to watch the because you're seeing their chin because of where the camera's hanging around their neck. So you can tell if they're just lying around and ruminating or if they're actively grazing. And the other neat thing about it is because it's pointing right at their mouth, you can categorize what exactly they're eating. And so we've learned all kinds of neat things from this project. Like, for example, because summers are now longer because of climate change, this means the insect season is longer which is a real problem for caribou. They're, boy, they get hit with a lot of terrible insects and parasites, but they have to move to high ground that is unvegetated to get away from these insects. So they're grazing for less time every summer, and so they're not as fat as winter approaches. So, And they have all kinds of interesting ways that they avoid insects, like they will press their noses to the ground and aggregate in these big groups so that the insects can't lay eggs in their noses. So you'll see them all standing around a big group, all with their heads down, pressed into the soil. That's interesting. That's so interesting that they can fight back. It is. Well, Alice, as always, it is just so delightful when you come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do so. It's my absolute pleasure, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, 
a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.